I just want to do a quick reminder. Um, last week, we s dedicated the benevolence to Ms. Murtis's daughter, who's going to be covering a lot of the expenses and going to be here for a while. We said that we would do that for two weeks straight. So if last week you weren't prepared for that and you wanted to give towards that cause this week, well, during the offering, just mark it as benevolence, and the count team will know that that's what your intention is with that. All right? Uh, let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you again for another Lord's Day. And we ask, O oh Lord, as Pastor Corey said earlier, that you would deliver us from cold hearts and distractions and help us to focus attentively on your word now. You deserve all things, O oh God, and we are weak. And so we pray that you would strengthen us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In this sermon, we're going to be hearing from God's word about what we call the Lord's Day. And it's a term that you hear us pastors use a lot. Right? We say things like, it's a joy to be here with you on the Lord's Day. Occasionally, you may actually hear me greet you with, happy Lord's Day. And what exactly, though, are we talking about? Well, that's what we're going to peer into today. That's our subject today. Now, if this is your first time here and you were looking for a type of verse-by-verse -verse exposition, I want to assure you that that is our regular diet of preaching that we do here at this church. Verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Scripture. We recently, by God's mercy, completed First Peter. We've been doing Isaiah for the last several weeks. Pastor Rolo has been going through Luke, and that's how we normally preach. But there are times when it's appropriate and good and helpful to pause for a moment and take a more topical approach. Topical sermons are not inherently bad. Uh, I hope you understand that, because as a matter of fact, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermons in Acts, the Book of Hebrews, which is often understood to be a sermon, they're all topical. So what's more important is that any sermon must come from the Word of God. It must be exegetical. It must come from the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God, and accurately so. So that's our goal today as we look at this topic of the Lord's Day. Now, why are we taking this short detour? It's our desire as the pastors that our church family not only understands the biblical foundation for the Lord's Day and therefore observes the Lord's Day rightly, but that our church family also cherishes the Lord's Day, loves it, looks forward to it, and benefits from it greatly. We hold that observance of the Lord's Day is a moral issue, and that not observing the Lord's Day can be sinful. But we also see that God's commandments for us are not just for His glory, but they're also for our good. So when you see the Lord's Day rightly, when you look at it rightly, you will benefit from it if you act accordingly. And our desire is that every single sheep in our flock, every member of this church, would treasure the Lord's Day. And thus God would be glorified in our observance of it. But before we can even get to that point of talking about enjoying the Lord's Day, we need to answer the question, is the Lord's Day commanded? And that's what we're going to look at first. Here are the questions in your bulletin that we're going to seek to answer from God's Word today. Number one, is the fourth commandment still in force today? Two, why do we observe the fourth commandment on Sunday instead of Saturday? Three, what does God expect us to do on the Lord's Day? And four, how has God designed the Lord's Day for our good? You're asking some good questions. Let's take some time to answer that one at a time with the Spirit's help. So your first question, is the fourth commandment still in force today? We're going to spend about half of our time today just on this first question. And first, let's examine the fourth commandment together. But before we can look at it, let's just, let's just look at some historical context of this verse. The Israelites were in the beginning of Exodus being oppressed by Egypt. God heard their cry. He heard their cry and he remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he commissioned Moses to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh. 
He sent Moses and his brother Aaron to go and perform signs and wonders before Pharaoh, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let God's people go. So God unleashed 10 plagues to judge Pharaoh. And not only to judge Pharaoh, but to show himself as almighty over the gods of Egypt. He then instructed the Israelites to celebrate the Passover in memorial of his salvation. And he protected the Israelites from the final plague, the death of the firstborn. At this final plague, Pharaoh finally relented. And God led the people out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And Pharaoh changed his mind again, and he pursued them. And, but God parted the Red Sea for God's people to walk safely through, and he drowned Pharaoh and his army. He then provided food and water for the Israelites in the wilderness. He was testing their faith and obedience. He was teaching them to depend on him daily. He gave them victory over the Amalekites who attacked them at Rephidim. And then he summoned Moses and the people to Mount Sinai, where he would establish a covenant with his people. He revealed himself to the people over Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and a loud trumpet blast, causing the people to tremble in fear and in awe. And then in Exodus 20, the portion that Pastor Corey started to read, he starts speaking the Ten Commandments to his people. He gives them the basic moral laws that they should follow as his covenant people. First, he appeals to them in Exodus 20, verse 2, that he is Yahweh. He is their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He brought them out of the house of slavery. And that's the basis that he provides for why they ought to obey his commandments. He's their God. And he saved them. And by the way, that's, that's why we obey God's commandments as well. He's our God. He saved us. We love him. And we obey him. Thus, he commands that they have no other gods before him, that they shouldn't make any idols to worship, and that they should not take his name in vain. And then he says in verses 8 through 11 of Exodus 20, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So he tells him in verse 9, to remember the Sabbath day. They were to remember it. In one sense, they were simply to remember that it had been instituted. This isn't actually the first time in Scripture that they were commanded to set aside a day of rest. Earlier in Exodus 16, the people are in the wilderness. They're not at Mount Sinai yet. And the Lord gives them manna. And Moses says to them in Exodus 16, verses 23 and 26, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now, interestingly, in Exodus 16, this wording makes it seem like they already had a concept of what a Sabbath was. He didn't say, you shall do this and you shall call it the Sabbath. He simply tells them that the day after would be a holy Sabbath, a day of solemn rest, and he instructed them accordingly. So the existence of Sabbaths likely existed before Exodus 16 because they seem to know what he's talking about. We need to remember that for later. In Exodus 20, our chapter that we're looking at, when God gives his people the law, he tells them to remember the Sabbath. They already knew what the Sabbath was, and God was simply calling them to remember it. But the word remember here likely means more than just recall that it exists. It likely has this idea of observe it, honor it. We understand this concept, right? When, when we hear phrases like, Remember the Alamo, or 
with regard to 9-11, never forget. God calls the people to honor and observe the Sabbath that he instituted with them. And then he tells them in Exodus 20, verse 8, to keep it holy. They were to remember it to keep it holy. They were to be careful to keep the Sabbath set apart. And in verse 9, he gets more specific. Six days you shall work and do all your work. They were to get everything that they needed to get done from Sunday through Friday. The beginning of verse 10 continues, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. The words that's translated as Sabbath uh, is an, an intensive form of the word for rest. And what that means grammatically is that the Sabbath is not just rest. It is a rest. Specifically, it's a day of rest. And notice, though, that it's not just for rest, but it's in particular, verse 10 says, it's a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. In other words, it wasn't only about being set apart for rest. It was to be rest set apart for God. It wasn't only about having a weekend so that they could rest and recover. It was, it was so that they could rest from their work and focus on him. We understand this, right? Like, have you ever had a family day? What happens when someone during family day is engrossed in their work? Yeah, it, it creates controversy. People get upset about that. Hey, today's supposed to be a family day. Close your laptop. You're supposed to be focused on your family. And that's the idea behind having a Sabbath to God. It wasn't only about resting from work. It was about resting from work so that the people could focus on him. To that end, God forbids in the fourth commandment one particular thing, work. And the middle of verse 10 continues, On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So this is a comprehensive command for the entire household. And the specificity of this command would prevent a head of a household from saying, well, I'm not working, my children are. Like, I'm not working, just my servants are. Or just my livestock are. Nobody in Israel was supposed to work on God's day. The beginning of verse 11 explains this. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So the basis for this seventh day Sabbath was creation. Genesis 1 tells us that God created everything in six days, and he rested on the seventh. God's people were to follow that pattern by also working six days as he did, and resting on the seventh as he did. And the end of verse 11 comments, Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He took his day of rest and he set it apart. Now, what did the Israelites do on the Sabbath? If they were not to work, what did they do instead? Well, there's good evidence that they came together to worship the Lord. Leviticus 23.3 describes the Sabbath as a holy convocation. Other translations say, a day of sacred or holy assembly. In 2 Kings 4.23, a woman whose son was miraculously revived by the prophet Elisha asks her husband if she can go see the prophet. And the husband basically says, why would you go today? It's not the Sabbath, right? So it, it seems to imply that the people would hear from prophets on the Sabbath. 2 Chronicles 31.3 implies that sacrifices were done on the Sabbath. And then Jesus, who fulfilled the law perfectly, made it his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, he stood up to read from the scroll of Isaiah, and then he sat down to teach them. So it also seems that biblical instruction was also part of Sabbath observance. So, in summary, not only did they rest on the Sabbath, but they came together to worship Yahweh, to learn from his word, 
And God told them to remember the Sabbath, to set it apart, to rest from their labors. And what they did instead of working was to come together to worship God. So that's the fourth commandment. Now, we need to answer the question, is this fourth commandment still in force today? And to answer that question, we need to figure out what is the nature of the Ten Commandments as a whole to begin with? Were they specifically for Israel? Were they specifically for that covenant? Or are they the eternal law of God and therefore applicable to all people everywhere? Well, to answer that, we need to go all the way back to the garden. We can infer that the law of God was written on Adam's heart. Genesis 1.27 tells us that Adam was made in the image of God. And Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that he was made upright. And so what that means is that Adam was made inherently good. And what that means is that even though the only law that was expressly told to Adam was, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that if Adam had not eaten from that tree, Adam would have lived his life worshiping God alone. He would have not killed anyone. He would have never committed adultery. He would have never stolen. He would have never lied. He would have never coveted. All right? So worshiping God alone has always been right. Sinning against people has always been wrong. It didn't start being right or wrong in Exodus 20. Does that make sense? It didn't just start being right or wrong in Exodus 20. So part of being in the image of God is having this inner sense of morality, which is based on God's eternal righteousness. This is further proven in the fact that when Cain killed Abel, the first murder in history, Cain wasn't able to say, well, you never told me I couldn't. He knew the law of God. He knew murder was wrong, and he was judged for it. The same law that was written on the hearts of Adam and Cain and so on has remained in force throughout all of human history. Romans 2, 14 through 15 says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The Gentiles, the people who were not Jewish in Jesus' time, they didn't have the law, meaning they didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the rest of the laws that Israel had either. However, by nature, they were obeying the law. Now, what did that mean? Did that mean that they didn't eat shrimp? Or that they didn't wear clothes with mixed fabrics? No, it's referring to God's moral law. Gentiles inherently knew right from wrong. And the fact that they sometimes obeyed the law, even though they didn't have it, like the Israelites did, it bears witness that they were guilty of breaking God's law because it was written on their hearts. Now we submit to you, that this eternal law is summarized in the Ten Commandments that were given to Israel. Many laws were given to Israel. Many of them were. But only these Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God himself. God officially codified the law that was already written on the hearts of men. And beautifully, the first four commandments are all about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the last six commandments are all about loving your neighbor as yourself. After God provided Israel with these Ten Commandments, then he further gave them ceremonial and judicious laws, none of, them which, none of which were written on stone tablets by the finger of God, by the way. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't serious. It didn't mean that they weren't important. It just implies that the Ten have some sort of preeminence. There's something special about the ten. There's something different about them. The ceremonial laws were given to instruct Israel on how they were to worship God. They're predominantly found in the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, which we now know was ultimately pointing forward to Jesus Christ. 
These ceremonial laws were temporary, and they were abrogated by Jesus Christ. Speaking about these ceremonies in Hebrews 9, 9 through 10, the author says this, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant provided for the people a cleanness, a ceremonial cleanness that was required until Jesus came to permanently purify his people. In addition to these ceremonial laws, a sacrificial system, etc., God also gave Israel various judicial laws on how to be governed as a nation. And by the way, that's, not, that's why they weren't needed until Exodus 20. Because okay? before Exodus 20, they were a wandering group of nomads. Now, God was establishing them as their own nation. So they needed to have a criminal justice system, a national justice system. But since we are not that nation, we don't need to obey those judicial laws any more than Americans need to obey British laws in America. But we can learn from them. We can learn general principles from God's civil law or judicious law. But while the ceremonial and the judicious laws of Israel have expired, God's moral law remains. And that makes sense because God doesn't change. What has always been right and wrong continues to be right and wrong. That transcends every covenant that you see in the Bible because it's based on who he is and he never changes. Now, some Christians claim that the the Ten Commandments don't matter to us anymore. All we need to worry about, they say, is loving God and loving neighbor. But Romans 13, 8 through 10 says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And also James chapter 2, verses 8, 10 through 12 says this, If you will really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So in these arguments that are being made by Paul in one place and James in another, they appeal to none other than the Ten Commandments. Yes, in one sense, we are free to simply focus on loving God and loving neighbor. But these New Testament passages instruct us that loving God and loving neighbor is simply a summary of the Ten Commandments. Christ didn't dissolve God's law, but he actually strengthened it. He didn't remove it. He helped us with how to rightly understand it and how to rightly apply it. They aren't aren't to be merely obeyed literally and externally. In other words, a person can't say that because they've never murdered anyone or because they've never committed adultery that they've kept those laws. They can't say that. Jesus teaches us that thou shall not murder also means thou shall not hate. Thou shall not commit adultery also means thou shall not lust. So no, the Ten Commandments don't spell out everything regarding loving God and loving neighbor, but they summarize them. They summarize them. And in this way, the Ten Commandments are still in force in the New Covenant. We don't obey them in order to be right with God, We obey them because we have been made right with God. Like that quote we heard last week is that the law brought us to Christ for justification and Christ sends us back to the law for sanctification, right? So the law is still in force. And it's an even greater way now because rather than 
that rather than they're being written on tablets of stone that are external to us, kept in the Ark of the Covenant somewhere, they are now internal to us. God wrote them with his own finger on our hearts. So now we can freely walk by the Spirit. We can walk in love, and the result will be that we will obey the Ten Commandments. And since God's eternal law, that is summarized by the Ten Commandments, is still in force, then the Fourth Commandment is still in force. But if the Fourth Commandment is still in force, Pastor Ed, then why don't we worship on Saturday? Another great question. Let's think about that. Number two, why do we observe the fourth commandment on Sunday instead of Saturday? So while the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's eternal law, if you look at it, you can tell that they've also been contextualized to the nation of Israel. Okay? So they're a summary of God's eternal law contextualized to the nation of Israel. So for example, the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother is accompanied by these words, accompanied by these words in Exodus 20, verse 12. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The land, Canaan, right? And just because we're not concerned with remaining in that land, which was promised to Israel, does not mean that we no longer need to honor our parents. The ninth commandment similarly says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's in verse 16. Well, we can't say, well, I'm not in court. So the lie that I'm about to tell doesn't apply to the ninth commandment, right? We know from those words that they imply that we ought not to lie, that we ought to be honest, that we ought to be truthful. Similarly, the tenth commandment says that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife, servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And we know that that implies that we should be content with what God has given us, even if our neighbor doesn't have an ox or doesn't have a donkey. So while the Ten Commandments are written in a way that is specifically contextualized to the nation of Israel, each commandment carries a moral principle that was already written on the hearts of all men and all women. Jesus teaches us that in that way. Remember, he says, if you lust over a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He's told us that there is an underlying moral principle between each of these, behind each of these commandments. So when it comes to the fourth commandment, God specifically tells Israel that they need to set apart, specifically, the last day of the week. And he tells them why. But the actual day of the week is not the moral principle. The actual day of the week is not the underlying moral principle of the fourth commandment. How do we know that? It's because the day of the week is not written on the hearts of all men. Without God's special revelation, there's no way that the pagans around them would have known that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh, and that therefore the people should rest and worship God on the seventh. The only way that Israel had that piece of information was that God had revealed it to them specially. So if it's not the seventh day, what is the eternal moral principle that underlies the words of the fourth commandment? It's that people should stop and worship God. They should stop and worship God. But there is something notable, however, that the rhythm of seven days seems to be universal. Other lengths of the weeks have been tried from time to time, but they have been abandoned, right? We see seven-day periods in Sumeria in 2100 BC. We see seven-day periods in the Epic of Gilgamesh and in the Babylonian calendar. And later it seems to have been adopted in the Persian Empire, in Gupta, India, and in Tang, China. Even the Roman Empire, well, the Roman Empire actually had an eight-day calendar for a while, but Julius Caesar comes in and introduces the seven-day calendar, and from then on, that starts to take over. So isn't it interesting that the rhythm of seven days seems to be felt by almost everyone? And also interesting is the trend of worshiping gods on a particular day of the week. 
In Islam, the weekly day of worship is Friday. With Hinduism, some deities are associated with specific days of the week. Monday is dedicated to Shiva, Tuesday to Hanuman, etc. The Babylonians worshipped various gods and goddesses on the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th day of the month. And if, if you're not married to a mathematician, that's seven-day periods. One day in seven, they would worship their false gods. Is it any accident that religious people tend to set aside a day every week to worship their false gods? What it implies is that setting aside a day to worship your God is written on the hearts of men and women, whether they're Judeo-Christian or not. And so the moral aspect of the fourth commandment is not which particular day of the week, but that one day of the week is set apart for God. For Israel, God had particularly prescribed the last day of the week, and that was ceremonial. And just like everything else in the ceremonial law, it pointed forward to Jesus Christ. It pointed forward to our rest in him. Yes, it did point back to creation, but it also pointed forward to new creation. And together with the rest of the ceremonial law, the Jewish Sabbath was fulfilled and abolished in Christ. Colossians 2, 16 through 17 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath pointed to Christ, who was the substance of it, and nobody was to judge anyone about observing the Sabbath. So if a Jew became a Christian and he still wanted to observe the Sabbath, he was free to do so. Leave that guy alone. Let him, let him observe the Sabbath. But if new converts were, uh, were saved, they did not need to observe the Sabbath. And they had the right to refuse to be judged for not observing the Sabbath. By the way, when I say the Sabbath, I'm referring to the Jewish Sabbath, okay? At least in the purpose of this sermon. When I say the Sabbath, I'm referring to the Jewish Sabbath. Theologically, there are some who, many, who refer to the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath, and I think that's fair. But it's never, ever called the Sabbath in the New Testament. All references to the Sabbath refer to the Jewish Sabbath. The Sabbath was replaced by the Lord's Day. It was replaced by the Lord's Day. Many Reformed Christians, again, they refer to the Lord's Day as the Sabbath. But for our purposes today, we're going to continue to refer to it as the Lord's Day. In fact, I speculate that the New Testament authors in the early church purposely did not call it the Sabbath in order to avoid confusing it with a Jewish Sabbath. Okay? So in the New Testament church, some continued to observe the Sabbath on Saturday. Some didn't. But all of them observed the Lord's Day. In Acts 20, verse 7, we read this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So in this verse, we see that they met together. They took the Lord's Supper. They listened to Paul's teaching on Sunday, on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, Paul instructs the church to collect money on every Sunday so that it would already be collected when Paul would come to take their offering to Jerusalem. And by the way, he tells the church at Corinth that he gave the same instructions to the churches in Galatia, implying that both the church in Corinth and Galatia met together on Sundays. Revelation 1.10 makes the only reference to the Lord's Day, but the Didache, which was a church document written about the same time as Revelation, tells Christians to gather on Sunday, which it calls the Lord's Day, which indicates for us that this term, Lord's Day, was already being used in the church to refer to Sunday. And a couple of other pieces from early church history, Ignatius of Antioch, who died in the early 100s, he writes this, If therefore those who were brought up in the ancient order of things 
have come to the possession of a new hope, listen, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. So that's Ignatius of the early 100s. Justin Martyr, who also lived in the 100s, writes this, But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. Now, these historical quotes from the Didache, Ignatius, and Justin, they're not our authority, okay? But they confirm for us what we see in the scriptures, that the early church seems to have been freed from observing the Sabbath on the Saturday and instead was worshiping the Lord on Sundays. So that's why we observe the fourth commandment on Sunday. To review, it's because seventh-day worship was a ceremonial command given to Israel in the context of their covenant. And that command was based on the eternal moral principle that men and women should set aside a day of the week to worship God. And we follow the biblical model of doing so on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day that signifies the new creation. Now, having said all of that, Just as the Jews were to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, so Christians should remember the Lord's day and keep it holy. Our God deserves every moment of our lives. And one of the ways that we express that to him is by giving him simply one day out of the seven that he gives us every single week. He gives us six days to labor, to do all of our work, But the first day is a rest to the Lord our God. God created all things. And on the eighth day, he inaugurated his new creation. So what are we supposed to do on the Lord's day? That brings us to number three. What does God expect us to do on the Lord's day? Well, we already saw in Acts 20 verse 7 that we ought to observe the Lord's Supper. We ought to listen to his word. We also saw in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, that it's appropriate to give generously and cheerfully in support of God's people. What are some other things that God wants us to do on the Lord's day? Let's look at Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. Here's what it says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we also see in this passage that we are to be intentional in thinking about how we can stir one another up to love and good works. We're to consider it. We're not just to do it, we're to consider how to do it. The word implies giving a thoughtful attention to one another in these areas. We're not just winging it, okay, when it comes to stirring one another up. Notice then that every Christian has a responsibility on the Lord's day to pump each other up. It's not just the preacher's responsibility, it's not just the teacher's, it's everyone's. When you're here on the Lord's Day, part of your mission should be to stir up your brothers and sisters to love and good works. Too many people say things like, I didn't get anything out of church today. Well, you're not supposed to just be here to get stuff out of people. You're also supposed to give. You're supposed to consider Be thoughtful and be intentional about how you can stir up your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of what you're supposed to do on the Lord's Day. And ideally, if everybody is doing that, then you will have gotten something out of church. Yes, we can do this any day of the week, that's true. But notice the phrase there, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, might be talking about meeting together any day of the week and throughout the week, but Based on what we saw in the previous passages and in church history, it seems like the primary day of the church met together 
was on the Lord's Day. When you say, but doesn't Acts 2.42 and say that they met every day? Yes, for a while they did because they weren't working. They were in Jerusalem for a feast and they weren't going back to their homes to work. But then they eventually did. The reality of they have to work six days and worship God on one day set back in. Okay? So it seems like the primary day the church met together was on the Lord's Day. And in Hebrews, it seems as if some were making a habit of neglecting to get together with the church. The Christians in the book of Hebrews were not to make it a habit to neglect to meet with a church family. They were not to do that. Take some time for some self-reflection here. How seriously do you take getting together with your church family on the Lord's Day? How big a deal is that for you? Is it something that you have found to be optional or secondary in your life? Do you build your week around the Lord's Day? Do you plan your vacations around the Lord's Day? Now, we, of course, we recognize that some people are unable to worship with God's people on the Lord's Day. And if you're unable, you're not violating any commandment because you're providentially hindered from obeying it, like Paul was when he was imprisoned. And we also recognize that sometimes it does make sense to include Sunday in your vacation planning. But is the Lord's Day set apart in your heart in such a way that if you can't be with God's people on the Lord's Day, you feel it. You're sad about it. And is the Lord's Day important enough to you that if you're out of town on a Sunday, that you still make sure to find a church to meet with wherever possible? We are not to neglect meeting together. We certainly should not make it a habit. We should be gathering with God's people every Lord's Day, if at all possible. Instead of neglecting to meet together, we should, verse 25 says, be encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. Part of the reason that it's so important that we meet together regularly is that we need each other's encouragement. We need it. As the day of Christ draws near, as his return draws near, we need, a, we need each other's help to fix our eyes on that hope instead of the suffering that we experience in this world. We need that. What else should we do when we gather? We should, four quick things, we should pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And later in that letter, Paul is going to explain that he's saying those things in the context of how the church should operate when it's gathered, the household of God. Read the scriptures is another thing. We should read the scriptures and hear the word preached on the Lord's Day. Acts 20 verse 7 is, is an example of this when Luke writes, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. He taught them the scriptures for hours. And by the way, if you think this sermon is long, someone actually died from that sermon, okay? <laughs> he was raised, but... The third thing is teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We sing together, not just because it's just something we do, we teach each other the word of Christ through it. And fourthly, we observe the Lord's Supper and baptisms like we're going to observe baptisms today. 1 Corinthians gives us instructions on how we're to do each of those things together as one body. And this is why we do all that we do when we gather on the Lord's Day. Question for you. Do you find these elements to be important in your life? How seriously do you take those things? Throughout the years that I've been part of this church, here are just some of the behaviors that I've observed, not from everyone, but from enough people that it has stood out to me over the years. I've seen some people, from some people, apathy toward corporate prayer. The watching of sports during the service 
even when the word of God is being preached, social media being scrolled through, regular tardiness to the worship service, habitual leaving in the middle of the service, sporadic attendance of worship services, and this one grinds my gears, hanging out with people in the lobby during worship services. I feel like I can be a little firm with you today. I feel like I've bought that with all those Isaiah passages, all right? You're welcome, and thank you. Listen, if you exhibit these behaviors, then what you're saying in your actions is, I don't find what God commands me to do on the Lord's Day important. You might think this is all a bit legalistic, but let's just reason together for a moment, okay? Is the churches praying together something that should be taken seriously? Are not the scriptures God's very word and is not preaching the proclamation of God's word? Do not the songs that we sing help us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? And did not the Lord specifically to tell us to baptize people in his name and to remember his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us, proclaiming his death until he returns. Why would you take any of that lightly? Why would you treat any of that as common or optional? This is the Lord's day, the day that we have gathered to focus on the one whose day it is. And the central way that we focus on him is by doing what he has told us to do with reverent and joyful hearts. Church family, hear my heart on this. We need to be better at this. What we're doing here is special. It's holy. It's set apart. And if we will remember the Lord's day to keep it holy as a rest unto the Lord, then we need to be intentional in how we treat the day and the things that we do together on it. I'm giving you permission right now. If you see people goofing out in the lobby and you go to the bathroom, you say, let's get back in there. Let's get back in there and let's worship the Lord. You see people out there chatting, say, hey, listen, you could actually hear the sermon from the ceiling. Let's, let's listen to the word of God instead of talking about nothing. I'm giving you permission to do that. Is that okay, pastors? Okay, phew. Okay. You can do this. And here, here's the thing. This sounds burdensome. This should not be a burden on us because all of it is for our benefit. Which brings us to our fourth and final question. How has God designed the Lord's Day for our good? How has God designed the Lord's Day for our good? Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. Now, earlier we said that we would refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day instead of the Sabbath, but again, it is right to say that the Lord's Day is a Sabbath. It is a rest unto the Lord. We would even go so far as to say that the Sabbath of the Old Covenant pointed forward to the Lord's Day, which itself points forward to our eternal Sabbath. But Christ says that the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees who added all of these extra biblical requirements to the Sabbath had turned the Sabbath into the most difficult day of the week. It removed the purpose of God's instituting the Sabbath to give his people a day of rest. It was for their benefit. God doesn't benefit from you taking Sunday off. He doesn't even benefit from his people worshiping him. Yes, it glorifies him, but God is already perfectly glorious. He doesn't need any more glory. The Sabbath was for the good of his people. The Lord's day is for your good. It's for your good. In Isaiah 58, God rebukes his people for using fasting as a way to manipulate God and when they were otherwise living unrighteously and living unjustly toward others, he promises to bless them if they would worship God rightly. And then God ties that into the Sabbath. He says in Isaiah 58, 13 through 14, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, 
If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. There have been a couple ways that the phrase, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, has been understood. The first is the idea that the NIV captures. If you keep your foot from breaking the Sabbath, uh, implying unnecessary travel or business. And the other idea is the idea that the NRSV captures if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath. Either way, what's being talked about here is returning to a right observing of the Sabbath. And what that looks like is turning back, verse 13 of Isaiah 58, from doing your pleasure on God's holy day. Now, this is not to say that the Lord's day should not be enjoyable or pleasurable. The idea here is pursuing one's own interests instead of setting the day apart for God. Here's an example. People might call Sunday a family day. It's not a family day. It's God's day. Now, if you enjoy spending time with your family on God's day, that's fine. But the day does not primarily belong to the family. It primarily, it belongs to him. Not primarily, it belongs to him. But you say, all days belong to God. That's true. But there's only one day that God refers to as, verse 13, my holy day. In the Old Testament, that's the Sabbath. God essentially said, you have six days to pursue your own interests. I'm only requiring that you set aside one day for me, just one. And by the way, the Bible refers to the day as the Lord's Day, and church history bears out that that's what they called Sunday. And earlier, we mentioned that they were probably careful not to call it the Sabbath to avoid confusing it with a Jewish Sabbath. But why did they call it, of all possible name options, the Lord's Day? Some immediately say it was because that's the day that Christ was resurrected, and that's probably part of it. But isn't it more likely, based on this concept in this verse in Isaiah, that it's called the Lord's Day because they acknowledged that it belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his holy day. It belongs to him. They were implying that it is a Sabbath unto him without necessarily calling it the Sabbath. We understand this. We do. When it comes to Christians, we get all up in arms about the commercialization and co-opting of Christmas, right? We say, Christmas is about Jesus, and everything we do on Christmas should be about Jesus. I like your energy. Now, let's just apply that to the actual day that God set apart for that purpose, the Lord's Day. Friends, we get Christmas and Easter every Sunday. So the Lord calls us to refrain from doing our pleasure on his day, meaning that we are to focus on him, not ourselves. But it's not just about the action of doing so. It should be a delight to us. Verse 13 continues, And call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. God doesn't just want us to observe the Lord's day out of obligation. He wants us to receive it as a gift from him for the good of our souls. He has designed it for our good, and we should delight in it. We should call it honorable. What that means is we should hold the day in high esteem. What to you is the best day of the week? Is it Thursday when the NFL week starts? Is it Friday when you pick up your kids? Is it Saturday when you get your weekend started? Or is it Sunday, the day that the Lord has set apart for himself? If it feels unnatural to you, to say that Sunday is the best day of the week, there are two possibilities. The first, you don't know God because you haven't yet believed in Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, it makes sense why you're miserable right now. But you have a bigger problem than Sunday. Your sins deserve God's wrath. But God gave his only son to die on a Friday and rise again on a Sunday for sinners like you. And if you place your trust in him, you'll be forgiven all of your sins and you'll be given a new heart that will properly start to enjoy him. So that's one possibility. The second is that you do know God 
but you just haven't experienced the Lord's day as it was meant to be experienced. It's meant to be an honorable delight. If we honor it, if we don't go our own ways on it, if we don't seek our, our own pleasure on it, or talk, verse 13 says, idly, meaning talk about meaningless things, then God says in verse 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord. You see, this is why the Lord's day is a delight. If we treat it rightly, if we take the day to rest from everything else and focus on him, we will delight in him. But you say, I delight in him every day. Listen, with all due respect, I have done enough discipleship and counseling to know that's not true. At least not in its fullest sense. We should delight in him every day. But the reality is that every single day we have heartaches. We have distractions. We have work. We have school. We have homeschool. We have homemaking, etc. The world constantly distracts us from God. And while we should work against that distraction every day, the reality is we are distracted. So was it not a most prudent act from an all-wise God to acknowledge that reality about your life and say, set aside a day for me so you can delight in me. Yes, God knows our frames. He knows we're distracted. He knows that we can't realistically set aside every single day for him in any practical way. So he has prescribed for us that we set aside one day in seven to worship and enjoy him. You might think that it's awfully egotistical for God to set aside a day to be enjoyed, but that's because you misunderstand the situation. If a wife gets frustrated that a husband is distracted on date night, that's because she wants or needs attention from him. But God doesn't need anything. If nobody paid attention to him, he will still be holy in all of his perfections. Therefore, Focusing on him and delighting in him are for our good. When we focus on him, when we delight in him, we find true fulfillment and joy. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everyone in this world seeks fulfillment and joy, but true fulfillment and joy are found in God alone. If you have a new heart, you understand that. You understand that nothing else in this world will fulfill you or give you more joy than delighting in God himself. And God promises that if you don't trample on the Lord's day, if you focus on him on this one day in seven rather than your own stuff on this one day, you will take delight in him. And that's ultimately what it means to rest, saints. It's not just about not going to work. Our resting in Christ is not just about letting our bodies and minds recover. Resting in Christ means being spiritually parched and drinking from a cold bottle of water. It means being spiritually famished and eating a delicious ribeye steak. It means having your spiritual and emotional wounds mended. It means having your tears wiped away by God himself. Friends, you need this. And as much as you might claim that you get it every day, you know that at night, your head doesn't often hit the pillow saying, I have delighted in God today. God has graciously provided you with the Lord's day for that purpose. So receive it, embrace it, delight in it. When we pray together, the peace of God that transcends all understanding guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we hear Christ's words and learn from him together, we find rest for our souls. When we sing together, his word dwells in us richly. And when we observe his ordinances, we are regularly reminded of his death and resurrection as well as our own death and resurrection. God doesn't need any of those things. He has given them to you. It is for your good. It is for your delight. Will you choose to receive it? Again, the aim of the sermon was not only to submit to you that the Lord's day is God's fourth commandment still in force, but to encourage you 
to cherish this day every single week. I am privy to many of the challenges that you're going through. And I will tell you this, you need this day. I need this day. God knows our frames. He knows what we need. And in commanding us to set apart one day in seven for him, he's telling us that we need it. So treasure it. Take it seriously. Be intentional about setting it aside for him and call it what it is, the Lord's day. Let's pray. This is your day. You have made it, O Lord. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Help us, O Lord, not just to recognize that this is something that we need to do, but give us in our hearts a desire to do this, that we would treasure you and delight in you, be reinvigorated for the difficult week ahead. Help us, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.